join me in welcoming to the Distinctive Voices podium, Dr. Shane Ardo. Thank you for the introduction, Jennifer. Um, I'm really honored to be here this evening to tell you about the work my group's been pioneering at UC Irvine, less than a, a mile away, just up the road here. Uh, as Jennifer said, I've been there at UC Irvine for about three and a half years as an assistant professor. Um, and there, we've been developing a new technology to take sunlight and directly convert it into electricity. And you might say, well, wait a minute. We, we already know how to do that, right? That's called a solar cell. We can take sunlight and convert it into electricity, so why are you doing that? Well, to be candid, we are looking at that technology a little bit. But what I'm going to tell you about today is converting sunlight into a specific kind of electricity. And this electricity is not driven by electrons in a solid-state material like a silicon solar cell you see on people's roofs. Instead, what we're looking to do is use sunlight to directly drive ion transport. So ions in solution. And so ions, for example, are protons, hydroxides, you know, common table salt, sodium chloride, found in enormous quantities in the ocean. And so we think if we can directly take solar energy and make our solar cell that generates electricity by moving ions, we can directly desalinate salt water. Okay, and we think that's interesting because now we have an idea, we have a concept that in kind of one compartment can do it all. Take the sunlight, and move the ions, so it's a very simple design. Moreover, the materials that we're using are electrically insulating, okay? They don't pass electronic charge through them. They're cheap pieces of plastic, just like this plastic found in this water bottle here. This is polyethylene terephthalate. It's one of the materials that we use. And so we've already demonstrated that we can take specific dye molecules, bind them permanently to plastics like polyethylene terephthalate, illuminate them with sunlight conditions, and we see that we generate ionic electricity. It's very exciting to us. We're the first people to demonstrate this with synthetic materials. So what we hope we can do is take those types of materials and engineer them into something that looks like this, a bottle. Now, it wouldn't be transparent like this. It would be a horrible solar collector if it was, right? It would be darkly colored to absorb the photons. But then if we filled this up with salt water and then illuminated something of this size for about an hour, we have done calculations to show that we should be able to take the top off and then drink the now desalinated salt water. Now, of course, for conservation of mass, the sodium and chloride didn't disappear. They moved somewhere else in the bottle. I'll show you pictures of that later of some ideas we have. But needless to say, we think this could be kind of a game-changing technology for small portable desalination. Not necessarily for us here in the United States. You know, we have a very developed infrastructure. We know how to build large plants of things. We have a lot of money and capital that we can invest, and there's probably much better ideas than this here in the United States. But for developing countries, countries that don't have infrastructure or the money to invest in, in these huge, large-scale technologies, we think this could make sense, and it turns out to be quite a large target audience. So uh, let me take you through a talk today and tell you more about that. Let me tell you what I'm going to cover today. Uh, my outline is shown here. First, I'm going to go over and talk about the mechanisms of solar energy conversion and desalination. I think we all need to be on the same page, generally, how these processes occur. After talking about these, we can investigate some concepts of how we could marry a solar energy conversion technology to a desalination technology to drive the process I'm talking about. And then, of course, I'll tell you about our, our concept. Um, after that, I'll tell you about more about the inspiration for some of the ideas that I've come up with and my group has come up with. Um, we've been inspired by solar cells, a type of desalination called electrodialysis, natural photosynthesis. And again, I tell you, our target audience is really uh, people in developing nations. Um, and then lastly, I'll tell you about our current status in our research, show you a little bit of our science, and tell you kind of where we think we can go with this concept. So again, first I'm going to tell us about mechanisms of solar energy conversion and desalination, starting out with the solar energy conversion. Um, and so what I titled this slide is a, you know, a dream scenario for clean water generation. Wouldn't it be fantastic if we could just take the sunlight that's radiating down on us every day, and we could use that to productively take ocean water and make potable water. Well, that would just be fantastic. And I've already alluded to some of the points down here, is that while this would be a dream, um, efficient and reliable technologies exist to do this today. So maybe we don't need to dream. 
We already know how to do this. We know how to make large-scale reverse osmosis plants. These are the state-of-the-art plants to take ocean water and make it potable. We know how to convert solar energy into electricity to drive that plant. So we can do these things today. Okay? But there are barriers to implementation of these concepts that I'm listing up here. Um, it, it, notably, um, if we already have an existing infrastructure to do it a different way, it's hard to overtake that. Right? How are we going to displace fossil fuels when they're everywhere and they're tried and true and we know how they work? Moreover, cost. Right? Although reverse osmosis plants are very efficient, they still cost a lot. Okay, and so to build these, if we already have other options, if we can take water from other places uh, uh, in the United States and just drive it out, or if we can uh, build a pipeline and just flow water from other places, that may be a cheaper solution. So the question I want to ask are, are there opportunities for innovative science and innovative research in this phase space of solar and water? I mean, I'm not sure maybe that there are. You know, first looking at this, we already have very efficient solutions. But as I told you, I think we have a niche, and I think we have an interesting concept that's interesting both fundamentally and from the applied side, again, that I'll share today. Before I do that, let's talk about solar energy conversion. Okay? And so sunlight can be converted into heat. It's actually very easy to do that. Black molecules, black materials, they absorb almost all of sunlight. If you wear a black t-shirt on a sunny day, you get very warm, okay? Because black things are very efficient at doing that. Um, a molecule I'm showing up here as this little circle, these little, excuse me, uh, ovals, and I'm, I, I put this little picture in the bottom left just to give you an idea of the size scale I'm talking about when I talk about a molecule absorbing light. So if we take the kind of average size of a human being and we scale that down to the size of a human hair, we'd have to scale again by that same factor to get the size of a molecule. These things are tiny, okay? They're like a nanometer big, okay? They're very small. And so when these molecules absorb light, this is what happens. So we're drawing light as this little, little wiggle because it has wave-like properties. Okay? It has energy and other properties associated with it. And whether that's absorbed by our black molecule, that molecule now has those properties. It has the charge of the light. It has the mass of the light. It has the momentum of the light. And it has the energy of the light. And the energy is the one that we're really interested in. Now we've taken that light energy and stole it and had it transiently put into the molecule. Many molecules, if you don't do anything to them, will just do this. That red is meant to just relax back down, give off that energy as heat. Okay, a pretty simple idea. Um, you know, any black molecules will do that. This one will absorb light and do the same thing. It'll get excited and take that energy, and then again can just radiate it as heat. And I've got to do the third one up there too. Okay, it's the same animation. You don't have to watch. Okay, but you absorb all of the properties of the light, notably the energy I'm showing in blue. And then again, you could just give that off as heat. And so if you had enough molecules doing that fast enough for a long enough time, you could heat up your whole environment, and now you've changed the temperature. Since we've changed the temperature and it's different from our ambient temperature, we can use that to power things. But, as I've already shown here, that temperature will dissipate unless we insulate it really well. Okay, so that's one way to convert sunlight into maybe some form of energy that we could use in our society. Okay? A second way is converting sunlight into electricity. This is much harder. Okay, we can't take our run-of-the-mill black t-shirt and have that convert sunlight into electricity. We need specifically designed molecules. So now I'm showing three molecules. You could probably guess which one's going to absorb the light because it's black. Okay, so look, my, my animation, he knew it was going to happen. Same thing happens, you absorb it, now you have this energy transferred into the molecule. Instead of it giving off heat, though, if we, enter, if we engineer this molecular system correctly, we can induce it to do this. We can transfer a charge from this molecule to this one, carrying some of the energy with it. After it's done that, this molecule could transfer an electronic charge here, so this results in the lack of an electron. Both of these have some energy associated with them. Okay? Now, if we have this state, the same thing can happen that I showed you on the first slide. Look, these can just relax. They can recombine. That electron can go over there because of conservation of charge to just give off the heat. That's not what we want to happen. If we've designed this right, what we hope happens is we continue to separate these charges that have this energy. The electron runs over here. The lack of electron, the vacancy runs over there. Now we've got charge separation. And this is how solar cells work. Okay? And this delta Q is just saying we have a change in the charge. We have a charge separation. What we can do now is take this electron, run it up through a copper wire, and run it into our favorite device and have it come down and eventually fill in that vacancy and start the system over and over again, and that's how we have electricity. Okay? So now I just want to summarize these two things. This is the, the, the first part of the story. We can convert sunlight into heat. We can convert sunlight into electricity. This is a picture of just a polycrystalline silicon solar cell. 
the heat process, we change the temperature, the electricity, we're effectively separating charge. I put two points down here which are very interesting. Heat generation can be up to 100% efficient. Wow, that's pretty cool. Electricity cannot, okay? With a single absorber or without doing some fancy physics things, only about 30% of the sunlight energy can be converted into electricity. So you might say, well, wait a minute, Shane. Why would we convert anything into electricity? Why wouldn't we just convert it into heat? It's much more efficient, but wait a minute. If we have heat and we wanna run some process like our iPhone or we wanna desalinate water, maybe that conversion step isn't so efficient. And that's what we need to explore. Okay, so that's the first step, that's the sunlight, but we need to add water to the story. How can heat or electricity be used to desalinate water? And so I'll start out my story with water. There's a water molecule that I took off the internet somewhere. Okay, a little cartoon, these little ball and stick models are how chemists draw this. I've labeled them with the atoms, the two protons, um, and the oxygen there. And I have it wiggle, okay? It's actually wiggling and tumbling and the bonds are stretching and stuff just at room temperature, this water molecule is. But this is the best I could do in PowerPoint with my animation abilities, okay? So if we add a whole uh, a bottle of this stuff, this is my, maybe what it would look like. They're all kind of bouncing back and forth, not in sync like I have them here again. This is just because I, I don't know how to make a better animation. Um, but notice I've added sodiums and chlorides, okay? The major component in salt water. So what could we do? Well, we could heat this up a little bit. And if we heat it up high enough, obviously you know we get to a temperature where we get to boiling, right? And when, once we boil the water, we've got it at a high enough temperature, there's a phase change where these little bonds here, this interaction is broken, and that water molecule goes tumbling off and we evaporate. Now, of course, if we want to drink that water, we better condense it somewhere, right? I'm not going to drink water vapor. I want it you know, in my bottle. But this is one mechanism by which we can take energy and desalinate water. We've separated the water from the salt water. Okay, that's one story. Now, what I'm going to do is keep this same type of picture and just add a couple things to it. So here it is. So again, I've got now a room temperature scenario, this you know, just small wiggling back and forth. I've added a membrane, though, in this picture. And now I've got water on this side that has very few ions in it. And so what, what'll happen is this water will actually try to run back in this side due to an osmotic pressure gradient. So if instead we can apply a pressure gradient that's larger than the gradient for the water to come in, and the membrane is designed so that it selectively allows water to move through it and not ions, we can push water through it. But what we have to do to get that to happen is take electricity. Remember, we know how to make that with our, our solar converter, right? We know how to make electricity now. But we have to use the electricity to run a pump. Ah, that's, that's messy. And then the pump will pressurize our water system with our membrane to push it across. This is known as reverse osmosis. This is the process that's kind of the state-of-the-art technology to desalinate water on a large scale. This is a you know, simple cartoon how it works, okay? The last option I'm gonna show on the next slide, it's very similar to this one. Look what I did. I just took, put two membranes in the story. And we're adding more and more membranes, it's getting more complex. But it's a very similar story. Again, I have salt water. Now I have a little salt water here and salt water here, salt water everywhere. Two membranes, they have different properties than the previous membranes. These membranes allow specific ions to move through them, not water, okay? And so what you can do is you can now take your electricity and drive what's called redox chemistry, okay? What that involves is taking the electron in the wire and putting it on a molecule. Once you put it on a molecule, you can charge up one side of your system, and if you took an electron away at the other side, you can charge them up oppositely. So what we've done is we've put this delta Q, this difference in charge across this story, and that generates electrostatic potential, and look what it does. This minus sign moves the plus sodium, and this plus sign moves the minus chloride. This is called electrodialysis. Okay, and this is another option with which we can desalinate water. But this is just as kind of clunky as the previous example because there's this intermediate thing we have to do. We have to do redox chemistry at electrodes to then get this to move. This isn't quite very elegant. There's too many steps in my opinion. But anyway, these are the three ways that are traditionally used to desalinate water. So the one on the left is the thermal distillation with the change in temperature. The nice thing about it is you get to evaporate water so you have pure water at the end of the day. If there's any gunk in your original water, it's not there anymore, right? Because you've evaporated the water off and condensed it. The problem is it's very wasteful. Evaporation requires over a thousand times excess energy to make pure water. The minimum energy requirement to just move salt away from water or water away from salt, this takes a thousand times, actually 1,500 times as much energy. So here's an analogy. I, I did the calculations. This is close to right. If I wanted to make a peanut butter sandwich and I had my knife on the table, I'd lift my knife up about a foot, and that, that takes, I have to use energy to do that, right? There's potential energy I have to overcome, and I can stick it in and I can get my peanut butter out. 
The analogy here, if that's desalination, the minimal amount of energy you need, if you want to do this by this thermal process, you take your knife and you throw it up to the top of the Empire State Building. That's the gravitational potential you need to overcome. That's the equivalent of doing this by solar thermal. Oh my gosh. That 100% light to thermal conversion isn't looking so good anymore because this next step is horrible. Now, I want to let you know, this is just fundamental um, um, kind of single reactions. If you couple this in a large power plant, these chemical engineers are smart. They know how to take energy and heat that you give off and put it somewhere else, and they can steal energy, and that number can be significantly smaller. There are plants that operate by this. But if I want to do this on like the, the, the podium here, just have a little small thing I give you, whew, no, 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 no way. Really energy intensive. Reverse osmosis is fantastic. It's nearly perfect. Um, membranes exist that are over 50%. They're thermodynamic. They're, 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 they're um, a minimum energy requirement. They're very uh, fantastic. Um, what they do is they pressurize water, as I said, and drive it through a membrane, as I'm showing here. These little black triangles are meant to represent stuff you don't want, not salt ions. And the, so the problem is if you've got maybe bacteria or something in there, you'd push some of them through as well. That's what makes this one on the left kind of nice, is that there's not a problem with that. Um, but it is nice. Um, electrodialysis is fairly good. That redox step is actually a problem. It uses a lot of energy comparative to the energy just to desalinate the water. That becomes a problem, but you don't move as many things. Okay, water is highly concentrated. The ions, even in ocean water, are only there at a factor of about 100 less. So you don't have to move as many things, but it ends up being rather energy intensive, and you have the same process. If there's some yucky stuff in here at the beginning and you pull the ions out, the yucky stuff is still in there. Okay, so both of these have some residuals. So um, to put this together, I've now told you about how we can take sunlight and convert it into energy we might be able to use. I've now told you how we can take different types of energy and take salt water and make it potable. Now what I want to do is put all this story together and look at some possible technologies. But in doing that, I first want to tell you about the solar resource. Okay? Sunlight is a huge resource. The amount of energy in sunlight that strikes the entire surface of the Earth in just one hour is enough to power our planet for an entire year. Think about that. There's a huge amount of energy. That's all the incoming energy. If we can convert all of that into you know, types of uh, energy we need, for example, electricity, with 100% conversion of the entire surface of the Earth in one hour, we'd have enough to power our planet. It's a huge number. And so I've done some calculations. If we want to then supply all of the water we currently use on the planet by reverse osmosis, what that would take is 3% of that energy. So it turns out if you want to give, get us all of our water demand in a year, you need two minutes of sunlight. So this is the metric I want you to think about. Two minutes of sunlight in the entire Earth, and we can have all the water that we need. And let's come to this slide. This slide is now grouping the things together. I told you we can take sunlight with roughly 100% efficiency turn it into to heat with a black absorber. We can then take that and drive this thermal distillation process. Okay? This is kind of nice because it's just heat to heat. It's a simple kind of idea. On the other end, we can take sunlight and convert it to electricity. Then what we do is we go through some other intermediate step. We either you know, use the electricity to drive a pump or we use electricity to drive redox reactions. And depending on which one we do, if we drive a pump, we can then pressurize and perform reverse osmosis. If we do redox reactions, we can drive electrodialysis. Now remember, I said two minutes of sunlight on the entire surface of the Earth. So now what I'm doing is I'm putting kind of the equivalent minimum amount of time in this unit of this two minutes you know, over the entire surface of the Earth, taking in considerations kind of the, the reasonable efficiencies or, uh, uh, sorry, maximum efficiencies of these processes. So it turns out reverse osmosis, if you want to take the sunlight and do these steps, it would only take six minutes of sunlight in the entire surface of the Earth. If you want to do this process by electrodialysis, it's 40 minutes, and it's because of those redox reactions. And I'll show you more about this in a minute. If you want to do the solar thermal route, which is really nice, because it's just one kind of step. It's just temperature gradients. Two days. Two days. And that's because you have to take your knife and throw it. To make your peanut butter, you have to throw it to the, 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 the top of a huge building. Okay, It's just very wasteful. So that was my overview on the mechanisms of solar energy conversion and desalination. I now want to get into different desalination technologies, tell you about our concept and how it overcomes part of the issues with electrodialysis. That's the last thing that I showed you. So this is one option uh, uh, to, to, to deliver right now to a developed society like ours, you know, clean, potable water. This is the way that I would probably do it today. 
I'd make a large solar cell farm, and these solar cells would separate charge. I'd use that separation of charge to drive a pump, and that pump would drive a reverse osmosis plant. If I made this big enough, large scales, and I had a simple design, look, there's just all these pipes over and over again, piped together, and I was in a sunny region, so these worked, this would be economical. It would still cost a lot of money, but it would be economical. Okay? Um, but an infrastructure is needed, right? You can't just build one of these in the middle of the desert with your friends. Okay? You need a lot of people that know what they're doing and, and, and electricity, I mean, a way to get the electricity here to get it over there. And so if you don't have the development, that takes time and money. You need to maybe develop a place. So now you can start thinking, if I'm in a developed country and I don't have the opportunity to build these things and I don't have time to develop, what am I going to do? So there are other options. This is one option. Look, I just switched this one. You can take that Ivanpa plant, that solar thermal plant on the border of California and Nevada. It takes all these mirrors and heats up this fluid right here, uses that to run a turbine and make electricity. You could use that electricity to run a pump and then run, run reverse, reverse osmosis. There's another option. Okay, we can do this, say, today here in the United States. What else can we do? We can switch this one out. Look at this. This is a solar... Thermal, this is a thermal distillation. Look, this is temperature, temperature. This is great. Maybe if we put these together, we take that hot fluid and run it right next to the water here. Oh, that would be fantastic. We'd marry these two things. They're still going to cost a lot. They're big plants. But per person, this is actually the most economical way to get clean water. Developing regions need water simply, reliably, and now. And they're not developed. What are we going to do? They can't do this. This costs a lot of money. So what are other options? So now, my group started looking into what are the small-scale options for desalination, things you can almost hold in your hand. And this is what I'm showing here. So I'm calling these rapidly deployable, simple desalination solutions. And they're on two ends of the spectrum. Each one of these has good, a good property and a bad property. The one I'm showing on the left is a picture from actually World War II. It's a technology based on thermal distillation. The sunlight comes in, heats up the, the salt water in this bag, it evaporates, condenses, runs off, and there's a straw that you can drink out of. Okay? This is a temperature gradient. Um, the, 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 the problem with this is this bag needs to be this large to keep this person alive because it's very slow and inefficient. I don't want to throw, again, my knife to the top of a tall building. That's what you're doing here. Okay? So it's cheap, it's a plastic bag, but it's slow. On the other end, we have another technology that's very fast. This is used for disaster relief efforts by FEMA. For example, when the levees broke in New Orleans, they were dropping these things in there. It's like a bike pump. Remember before, for reverse osmosis, we need a pump to pressurize the water? Here, the pressurization occurs with your muscles. You use the bike pump, you push it with all your might, you pressurize this water, push it through a membrane, and based on the difference in pressure, you can get water. It's fast, but it's very expensive. These cost about $1,000, and this isn't driven by sunlight. You wouldn't have it driven by sunlight. That would be silly. You'd have a little solar cell in your hand that ran to a little pump over here, and then a little reverse, I wouldn't have that, right? This small, you need a simple technology. This makes sense. This is actually what's used and touted to be used in developing nations the most, the one that we need to throw the knife really high up in the air because it's wasteful. So our technology, we think, falls in the middle. Okay, we're looking to make a cheap plastic integrated device like a bottle. We call it integrated solar. This is kind of redundant, but anyway, photo and dialysis. So it's like that electrodialysis, but we cut electro out of there because I don't want you thinking electrons. We're just taking light and moving ions. Okay, this is the concept that we do. So reasonably, if it's a plastic bottle, it's got to be at, less, at least 10 times less expensive than this, and it has no moving parts. It's just a plastic thing that's going to drive some, uh, push some ions around. The cool thing is if you do um, physics calculations of this process versus the process down here, we can theoretically be 20 times faster than this idea here. If you want to take ocean water and make it potable, ocean has a lot of salt in it. I mentioned this before. This process moves salt. This process moves water. So if we take instead brackish water, which is about 10 times less salty, you still have to move the same amount of water here, but we get to move 10 times less things. And so ours can theoretically be 200 times as fast. These are big numbers. So we're very excited about these possibilities. We think this is a good, a good idea for uh, uh, many reasons. But notably, um, because there's a key feature of our technology. If we were to take sunlight and go into our favorite solar cell, as I showed earlier on the slides, and make regular electricity, I told you we need to drive a redox event to then move the ions. 
The redox event that's used almost every time is this one right here. It's the electrolysis of water into hydrogen and oxygen. The reason you do that is because by breaking water down into hydrogen and oxygen, they're both gases, they disappear. There's many other reactions you could do, but if it makes something that stays in your water, that could get in the water you're going to drink, and you're not going to like that. This reaction takes a, a one and a quarter volts. The reaction to take ocean water and make it potable only takes a quarter of a volt, and for brackish water, half of that. You waste an enormous amount of water just converting your electrons moving into making ions move. It's wasteful. So our concept skips that. Okay? It goes directly from sunlight into our plastic material, and it moves ions directly. We've, we've calculated we only need to drive this much potential through our system. We get to save 85% of the energy because we don't need to convert electrons and ions because we never are moving electrons net anywhere. We don't separate electrons. Okay? And, so, um, and some of these, the information I just said are down here. Okay? So here's the story. If I go back to this light absorption for solar cell cartoon I showed you before, let me show you what our concept is. Again, if we had this one black absorbing molecule and two that didn't, uh, here you go, it's your favorite part, right? The photon comes in, and the energy and the momentum and everything is absorbed into this molecule. There it is. And again, we separate charge, but watch this. The charges we first separate are these two, two ions. We facilitate water dissociation. We take that HOH molecule and pull an H and an OH apart. Now, these can recombine and make heat. We don't want that to happen. But if we can separate these in a material that looks like a solar cell, we design it like a solar cell, but for ions, we have a separation of charge, but I'm putting an I here to mean ionic charge. And now watch this. If I glue this into my electrodialysis story, remember this one we were moving the ions before? Watch what happens. I can take my proton and hydroxide and directly move them into these aqueous solutions, and they create a difference in the charge that then drives motion of sodium and chloride. There's no redox event. Light ion separation that drives um, sodium and chloride removal, if we can design it like this. So here's our concept, okay? It's a simple idea. It kind of needs to be circular, actually, to make this all work out. But this is, this is what I just showed you. Light comes in here to a material, separates a proton and hydroxide. And then remember, we had two membranes. Here's our plus and minus. The sodium chloride is here, the chloride goes there, the sodium goes there if we use the right membranes. These membranes are known. They're cheap pieces of plastic. They're made from all sorts of different polymers. We think we can do this. Don't ask me if you can buy one of these. We don't have any of these things yet. Okay, this is our concept. The physics makes sense. Um, we're working hard on these materials, and in fact, we developed two I'm showing here, this yellow one and this orange one. You immediately say, well, these aren't black, so it's not very efficient. You're right, okay? but it works meaning it takes light and generates ionic power. It does the process that we have here. Okay? We think um, that this is a good idea for three billion reasons. I've already mentioned this some. The first reason is there are a billion people on this planet that don't have access to clean, potable water, okay? mostly in developing nations. The second reason, I like this stat, is that these plastic water bottles are made on an enormous scale, about a billion every week in the United States. And you may say, Shane, that's a problem. We gotta get Say, good luck. It's everywhere. Okay, we don't use as many plastic bottles. Hopefully, we'll recycle our bottle or it'll be biodegradable. Fine, but we already make this on a huge scale. I want to use it. We don't need to have an infrastructure change to develop more of these things. Um, the last billion reasons why we think this is a good idea is the cheapest, most efficient technology, reverse osmosis, costs a billion dollars just to build the plant, not even to turn it on. They can't afford the billion dollars. So they need a different solution. This is actually even a worse scenario, as I've shown here, because the United Nations has predicted that in about 12 and a half years, half our global population won't have access to clean, potable water. It's a huge issue that we need some innovative solutions today. We think this crazy idea that I dreamed up about five years ago might be it. Okay? So let me tell you um, a little more about this. So I've told you about now the mechanisms of solar energy conversion and desalination. I've told you about the main technologies. I told you about our concept. I want to get into some of our inspiration, some of the rationale, my thinking when we went into developing this device, and then ultimately our current status and outlook. This is my more like science-y portion of the talk. So, so I'm sorry for the, the quality of this one, but we are actually inspired by nature. Okay, we're inspired by photosynthesis. And in the community that I grew up in, the photochemistry community, when someone would say that, they'd show this picture. 
This is the photosynthetic machinery across a lipid bilayer in a green plant. Okay, light is absorbed by two different photosystems right here and here. All these arrows mean electrons or ions are moving. The chemistry you do is you oxidize water to oxygen and you reduce over here this NADP molecule to an NADPH. Okay, what this does is it steals electrons from water and it uses them to make food for the plant. And it uses light, two different photosystems. And so researchers for, oh, I don't know how long now, maybe 20, 30 years have been making synthetic analogs of this thing. And so I'm showing here a picture from the Joint Center for Artificial Photosynthesis um, and the NSF Center for Chemical Innovation Solar up at Caltech. They've been developing a device that looks like this cartoon. These are little light-absorbing rods. They're semiconductors, another set of lighting-absorbing rods. They're, um, they're on top of one another, and they drive the chemistries that are very similar to this. They take water and oxidize it to oxygen, and on this side, they reduce protons to hydrogen. It's essentially our version of this. It allows us to get clean hydrogen. Okay, it's very exciting. There's been a lot of research in this um, recently. I like to turn to a different photosynthesis, actually the first photosynthetic process on our planet. Okay? What happened was in these purple halo bacteria, light is absorbed by these specific proteins called bacteriorhodopsins. And instead of moving electrons and doing bond making and breaking like chemists love, this just shuttles a proton. And it shuttles a proton against its energetic gradient. That's all it does. Then it uses this difference in proton activity here and here to go through another protein to make food for the plant. It's a cyclical cycle, it's a cycle that just involves light and proton motion. Very simple. So is there an analog of that? And the answer until well, a year or so ago was no. Okay? And so this is the concept that I came up with in 2013 to use this crazy idea I had of a membrane that would pump protons to desalinate. This is a picture I took. Obviously, it was very fuzzy. I didn't think I'd ever show it to anyone. On my iPhone, when I was in a Radisson Hotel at a review meeting for DOE, and this is the cartoon of the little circle with the salt water. The little wiggle is light. There's a proton and a hydroxide. There's a, that should be a sodium, but I put an M, and an X is for chloride, and this is the desalination idea. I was very proud of myself, right? And I wrote this. I said, this is cool. This is going to work. So I looked in the literature, and look what I found. Oh. oh, many, many years prior to me, George Murphy, who was visiting at the time, it was called the Solar Energy Research Institute, it's now called the National Renewable Energy Lab, right when it started up, wrote a perspective paper with this crazy idea on here. Okay, he drew this thing. This wasn't to be used for desalination. He didn't talk about that in this part of the paper. Um, he talked about other things. He didn't have kind of the exact mechanisms of how this would work. You know, we're doing things differently, but oh, just jab me in the side, right? <laughs> I thought I had it. But here's some quotes from his paper. A light-driven ion pump is analogous to a photoactive semiconductor electrode like silicon, like a silicon solar cell, but with electrons replaced by ions as transfer agents. I mean, everything I've been telling you, right? But look at this. The possibility of such a development is highly speculative. Oh, I love it. We did it. <laughs> ah, good. Thank you, George. So I think George is really a visionary. I think this is a, a fantastic paper that essentially no one cited, so it's very hard to find, but we found it. Okay, so we think we did it. And so this is what motivates us, right? We're, we modeled our idea after a solar cell. I was trained in labs that studied how solar cells work, how traditional electronic semiconductors work, the physics and the chemistry and all this stuff involved in them. Um, this is in my cartoon version of a silicon solar cell. Again, here's a cartoon of one. Um, this is called an N-type silicon material and P-type. The N and P just stand for the major carriers in the material. The N meaning that negative things conduct well in the material, meaning electrons. P meaning positive things, which the physicist termed holes. That just means where there isn't an electron, an orbital with a vacant electron. Electrons can move this way when holes are moving that way. It's the same thing. Okay, so we can bias this. We can use a battery and bias this and look at how charges move in and out of this material. And it has some special properties. And if you're a solar cell physics guru, you, drew, you draw cartoons like this and talk to your friends about it. Okay? And I'm not going to do that. Okay? I don't even like talking to my friends like that about these pictures. But what I do like is in this textbook by Peter Warfel, one of the world's experts in solar cell physics, he describes how a solar cell works in just like a half a page at a very down-to-earth chapter uh, uh, in simplistic terms. And I really like his language here. So he talks about a solar cell, like silicon, having a light absorber in the middle and then two membranes on either side. And the membranes are semi-permeable for two different charges. This one's semi-permeable for electrons, that's for holes. And he goes on to say, what does semi-permeable mean? It just means that it conducts that carrier better than the other one. 
So he's got one side that conducts negative things better than positive, and one that conducts positive better than negative, and he's calling it a membrane. And boy, that was fantastic to me, because these membranes exist. These plastic polymer membranes have been known for over 50 years. They're used in fuel cells and electrolyzers and electrochemical technologies all over the place. And there's ones that are selective for anions and ones that are selective for cations, meaning positive and negative things. Again, we, I thought we kind of invented something, and I looked in the literature. These membranes have been used for 50 years by the electrodialysis industry to desalinate water. Whoops. Okay, we thought we had something cool. But I looked at this and said, oh my gosh, this would make a fantastic solar cell. Let's characterize it. Let's apply a bias across it and see how charges move through this membrane. So what I'm showing here are what's called the current voltage curves of that like silicon device I showed you on the previous slide. Okay? What this means is you can take your favorite battery and you can apply a different voltage by your different battery to that silicon material and see how much charge passes through it. That's what this plot is showing. So if you go this direction and apply this type of bias, there's no charge that passes essentially. When you go this direction, there's this turn on. Okay? This is called rectification. This is behavior of a diode. And a diode is, enables our entire society right now. Every one of your iPhones has a trillion diodes in it. My laptop has all these diodes in it. Okay? This pointer has diodes in it. And so the fantastic thing about a diode is once you have a diode is that if it absorbs light and separates charge well, what you can do just kind of geometrically is take this line and move it down on the picture. Okay? And you move it down as far as how much light it absorbs. And now all the points in this space over here are useful uh, uh, to driving processes. Okay? This point right there is the ma maximum amount of energy you have to drive your process. And this point here is the maximum current, the fastest rate you can drive your process. So you want curves to be shifted down here, and you want them to look like this, because look, when it has this sharp turn on, you get a very large uh, value there. And so as I said, these membranes have been known for over 50 years. 1959, there was a paper reported on this membrane plastic version of one of these diodes. And look at this. This looks a lot like this purple one. Except you'll notice that right past zero, it starts increasing. And so if I turn this into one of my ion pumps and I shifted it down, it would come over and then it would go up really fast. You'd get a very little voltage out of this. You'd get very little energy. It wouldn't allow you to do all of these fancy things we want to do, this desalination. So I'm happy to report that my group has made some of these. We've made a lot of these. I'm just showing you one of our curves here. You can see it looks a lot like this one. Here's the zero mark. This, between here and here, is a volt. Okay? That's a significant amount of potential. What that's just telling us is that we have a lot of room before the current starts increasing the ionic current. So if we can uh, allow this material to absorb light, then it should be able to separate our ions and give us a large energy and a large rate of desalination. But there's the problem. This material looks like that in the dash box. It doesn't absorb light. Okay, how is this going to be a solar technology if it's not black, or at least partially black and absorbing light, right? So we, the key to our development was to introduce a specific type of molecule that could convert light directly into ionic energy. We needed a molecule to do that. So we needed to introduce something, one of these black molecules or another molecule to absorb light because this doesn't absorb any light. But we want to put it in this material because this material is set up to behave like a really good solar cell. So that's what we did. So, uh, but moving, moving forward, um, another uh, solar cell expert, um, Steve Fonash, commented that um, uh, for a, while the material system for a solar cell is involved, there's a core pieces that are required. There are three pieces, he says. One piece is you need the absorber. That's the thing I was talking about, this light-absorbing thing, so we can take the energy of the, the sunlight. And the other thing is a symmetry-breaking region and a contact. And it turns out the symmetry breaking region and the contact can be the same thing. This satisfies that. So as I've already alluded to, we need an absorber. What does our absorber need to do? Absorber materials may be classified as semiconductors or dyes. We chose dyes because we don't want solid state semiconductors in this. We just want little molecules bound to our plastic. They have an absorption caused by excitation, which anyway, this just says it absorbs sunlight. And the second part is important. It converts to free electrons and holes. We want to convert to free protons and hydroxides. So our goal is to find a molecule that can help us do that. And what that'll do every time we absorb this light, we have one unit of charge that moves that allows us to desalinate water. So this is our answer. 
What's on the left here is a state-of-the-art cation selective membrane. This is used in almost all electrochemical technologies, not batteries, but fuel cells, electrolyzers, chloralkali process, et cetera. It's called Nafion. It has these sulfonic acid groups in it that allow for this selective proton conduction. We've figured out the chemistry to make a bond between that group and our molecule. And this molecule is a special class of molecules that we didn't invent. These molecules have been around for 50 years in the fundamental photochemistry community. Those people just didn't talk to the electrodialysis community. And by us marrying these, I think we've got a good idea here. But the key part of this molecule is this OH bond here. Okay? If we dump this membrane in neutral water, it's this color. If we put it in acidic water, it's that color. What we're doing is we're just pulling this proton on and off. Okay? If I describe this molecule qualitatively, it has the acidity. Um, the, the, the willingness to give up its proton of milk. Not very acidic. But when it absorbs light, when it takes light's energy in, it makes a version of the molecule that thinks it's battery acid. This group wants to give up a proton really well after it absorbs light. And so that's our key. It thinks it's milk, it has a proton, it absorbs light, it thinks it's battery acid, it says, get out of here, proton. You know, I'm so acidic, I want to shoot the proton off. That's what we wanted. So we put that in our material. In fact, we put that in a lot of materials. So we've made a lot of polymers. I'm showing some of them down here. The first two are just these two over here. Um, you might be salivating because of my black material here. Don't. This is just a regular old boring dye molecule that gets excited and gives off heat. It was our control membrane to make sure that the things we were seeing were real. Okay? These are our two kind of champion materials. What we do in my lab is we use laser spectroscopy and microscopy to interrogate mechanisms, all the stuff I just told you to see if it's actually happening. And so we shine laser light, the laser light bounces around, we can pulse the laser light, we can put it under a microscope, and here's some images we've taken. We took that Nathion film I told you about, the dyes in it, we looked at it on its side. We cut it in half so you're looking down the side of the membrane. The membrane's about 50 microns thick, so it's about this bar right there, thickness, which is about that. And all this color coming off is fluorescence from the dye. It means it absorbed the light energy, okay, got excited, and then sometimes it gave light energy back off. So this allowed us to see that our dye molecules are all the way functionalized throughout our film. They're not just at the surface. Okay? We couldn't tell that by just looking at the film, so now we can tell that. What we've also done is we've done some um, other microscopy images. We've taken this polymer that's used in these plastic bottles, the one I talked about before, polyethylene terephthalate. We punched a whole bunch of holes in it, little tiny nano holes like the size of molecules, well, a little bit bigger, about 10 times bigger. And what we did is we put our dye molecules in the holes. So all the little holes are these black little marks, and all that, these, this red highlight is also fluorescence coming off. It's still green in color, we made it red, I don't know why we did that, but um, it's this green light coming off of the molecules, okay? And so this tells us that our photoacid dyes are localized in the desired locations. We can put them where we want to in these different polymer materials. This is a fancy PR cart uh, 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 image um, photograph that they took at UC Irvine, that's me in the background there, shining a laser pointer, and I'm gonna switch now so I pull out that exact laser pointer so this doesn't become confusing. So look, now I have a purple laser pointer. Okay. So that's the purple one I'm using there. I'm shining purple through a vial that has a membrane in it and see it looks green. That's because of what I showed you on the previous slide, right? It gives off green light after it gets excited. So our membrane has these dyes in it. We've even bounced this, the purple light down here and it goes through this vial and it has something that gives off orange light. So we can understand about the mechanisms of our systems based on the colors of the light they give off. This is just kind of an example of that. What my student did, he just showed me this, these data like a couple days ago. He took the same laser pointer, the one I have in my hand, and he shined it into our custom cells. These cells consist of big blocks of Teflon, the stuff that lines your frying pan so that it's non-stick. Okay, these big blocks with all these holes bored in them. There's holes here for us to stick electrodes and measure things. There's a hole going all the way through this. And one of our membranes, the Nafion thing, is right here in between these two blocks. And so if you look carefully, it's hard to see, but this light over here is purple. That's light that's gone through and just bounced off of the back metallic plate. And you can see here it has this green hue. So even when we're measuring the properties of our materials, they're still giving off this green light and doing what we think they would do. Okay, they're still functioning. So here's the mechanism that we, we hope is operative. We have our dye and it has one of these protons and it thinks it's milk. If we put it in a solution of water, that's roughly the acidity of orange juice. This is how the story would start. If we put this in our material so we have some sort of built-in asymmetry, negative on this side and positive on this side, when light is absorbed, this molecule thinks it's battery acid. 
Remember when it absorbs that light energy? Thinks it's battery acid, gives off the proton. The proton is immediately shuttled toward this side of the material. When the molecule gives off its excess energy as heat or light, that green light I was showing you when it comes back, its proton's gone. It's angry because it's milk and it wants its proton back and it's in orange juice. So it says, I'm gonna take one from water. It takes one from water to get back to its initial state. It's left with a hydroxide and that's shuttled the other direction by our material, by our diode membrane material. And then ultimately more water can come in and we can repeat this over and over again. This is what we hope is happening. Um, if you didn't like that cartoon, this is the same one. This is our dye molecule with this OH group bound to Nafion. When you excite it again, it thinks it's battery acid, it gives off a proton, and hopefully that gets pushed away before it comes back and realizes that it actually wants the proton because uh, it's milk. Take one, takes one from water, the hydroxide goes the other way, and we can repeat this cycle over and over and over. Okay? So we've done a lot of measurements on this using our lasers and shining light and seeing what happens, and we've observed using what's called ultra-fast fluorescent spectroscopy that most of the time our molecules get up to here and then they don't give up a proton. They don't think they're battery acid. They only think they're lemon juice. And based on our system we're using, our system is a little more acidic than lemon juice. So most of the time, it absorbs the light and it either just gives off that energy as heat or it gives it back as the green light and doesn't do productive chemistry. And we can learn that from our laser measurements. So we're angry. Only 10% of our dyes are doing what we want them to do. And so I'm just gonna end uh, with a couple slides here showing our performance. This is, pro this, this reading here, this photovoltage is proportional to the energy we get out of our, our materials. This is the first demonstration we had, I call that time zero, and over time we've had different materials that have given us different amounts of energy. This is on a log scale. So this is an order of 10 better, an order of 10 better. Look where we are recently, this was just a couple weeks ago. We demonstrated a voltage that's very close to that needed to desalinate ocean water and make it potable. Now these materials aren't that stable. We did it once, okay? Don't go run into the press about this, okay? But we're very excited because we think there's good promise here. We don't just need voltage though, that's the energy. We need current because current dictates the rate with which this happens, how quickly we can actually desalinate the water. This says we have the energy. Are we doing it fast? <laughs> no, that's the problem. This is our target up here. This is where we think we can get, but these three materials had this horrible, these horrible values. Remember, this is, these are orders of magnitude. Oh, yeah, yeah, this is barely working, okay? But it's working a little, so I'm happy. Um, and so uh, I wanna just tell you a little bit about uh, analogies between our semiconductor, if you know some things about semiconductors, and uh, traditional semiconductors. Um, our semiconductor is actually water, which I might be the first person to say that, hopefully. Probably not, I'll find that in the literature 50 years ago. Somebody else said it. But anyway, um, mobile charge carriers and, and electronic semiconductors are electrons and holes in our water. They're protons and hydroxides. You can dictate the energy and the distribution of the charge carriers by a simple formula. It's the product of the positive things, the negative things equals a number. The same thing holds for protons and hydroxides in water. Okay? The number of maximum carriers you can have in a semiconductor is traditionally about this number. In our material, it's that number, our water. And our energy gap, which I don't want to get into the details, but the energy gap of an ideal semiconductor is that water's ionic gap is about one. It's pretty good, actually. Water might be a pretty good semiconductor. This is pretty cool. Aha. Rain on your parade. Okay. I'm not gonna get into the details, except these are things that you wanna optimize. The optimized values are over here for electronic semiconductors. The values for water are shown over here. These are the differences in the numbers. Our, this number is different by six orders of magnitude. This one, three orders of magnitude. That one's five orders of magnitude. Bulk water is actually a very poor choice for a semiconductor in a solar cell. But we don't need a lot of energy. To desalinate water doesn't take a lot. So I think this is my last uh, uh, data slide here. What we've done is we've taken the systems I've already shown you, these two membranes together that look like a solar cell material. I put them into a solar cell modeling package with all the right numbers I just showed you on the previous slide. And I had, give me the performance. Tell me how good this should be in a best case scenario. If this is good, I will see a lot of points out here. The one I modeled is the one in red. Whoa, it's horrible. Well, this is great because these are two points we measured. So we're doing pretty good. We're doing as well as we should be doing for our horrible material. 
So we redesigned this. It was a very small change. We took our, our cation selective and anion selective material and put a separate material in the middle that has the dyes. We modeled this and we see much better performance. We're very happy about the possibilities here. We started making these. We haven't measured any yet. Sorry to, to say that. But I like this because that point right there is the energy you need to desalinate brackish water to potable levels. So we think we can do it. We can do it at not a terribly fast rate, but fast enough. Um, and we think we can tune the properties of the molecules because this assumed these yellow molecules I showed you. We need black molecules. So we're working on that. And so I just want to summarize now and give you a conclusion to my talk. I started out by telling you about the mechanism of solar energy conversion and desalination. I shared this very confusing slide. We can convert sunlight into heat and then use thermal distillation, but it's very, uh, very inefficient. This is kind of the state-of-the-art means to do this in developing countries right now, at least proposed. Um, otherwise, we can generate electronic electricity using a pump or redox reactions. We can drive our favorite osmosis, I mean, uh, dialysis processes. This would take six minutes by reverse osmosis, 40 minutes by electrodialysis. Our process would be six minutes, theoretically, okay? Because we skipped this little black box thing and we have an ionic conversion step. I showed you about desalination technologies in our concept. Our concept, we think, can be less expensive than the state-of-the-art used by FEMA. It's not going to be as fast because this is a really efficient bike pump. Um, on this side, though, for this small portable solar desalination, we can be 20 to 200 times fast, at least theoretically. The inspiration for our concept came from many places, one being the first photosynthetic organisms on the planet that took light and just pumped protons, the second being people mostly in developing nations, where in the next 12 and a half years, four billion people won't have access to clean potable water. It's a huge number. And so our current status and outlook, we've been modeling this design, but we haven't made any yet. We wouldn't do that because our membranes aren't efficient enough yet, but we're starting to do some measurements on systems like this. I've shown you some membranes that work. This is our new design that we're very excited about because we think it will just be kind of game changing. And so now I want to acknowledge other people that did a lot of work. And this is my last one, of course. Um, there are many people not at UC Irvine that helped with this project, many people at UC Irvine that helped with this project, and many alumni from my group that have helped with this project. Over here is a picture of my group. Not really currently, we're missing a lot of people, but almost all the work I showed you was done by two students, uh, Will White and Chris Sanborn, just two fantastic graduate students in my group. Um, we are supported by funding from UC Irvine, just startup funds supported most of this work, but recently we've won several awards, one from the Alfred Sloan Foundation, one for the Research Corporation for Science Advancement, and notably, the one that really kicked all of this off and they're really supporting our research fantastically is the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. We also have funding for graduate students um, directly through a graduate student fellowship from the National Science Foundation. And I just want to close that this job is hard. I know we all have hard jobs, right? But this job is hard, and it keeps me up really late at night, and I get really stressed, and I don't sleep a lot. And I really, it's fantastic when I get to go home and see my wife and my fantastic kids that keep smiles on my face, uh, a smile on my face. Uh, my, my, my family is really my rock. My mother is here in the audience somewhere. So she was able to come out, and, and um, you know, it's, just, it's really great to have that support. And so I've gone over by like a billion minutes. We probably have no time, but I'd love to keep taking as many questions as I can if you have them, um, and thank you.